Hey, Jason. How are you doing today? Hey, Q. It's good to see you. So I want to play a little word game with you. Oh, boy. This is an effort to try to get to know you better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although it sounds like we've been best friends for years. <laughs> we have, right? <laughs> yeah, but no, really, I want to get to know you better. So let's start off. Tell me what you prefer, coffee or tea? Coffee. Salad or steak? Salad. Sriracha or Tabasco? Sriracha. Tree rings or sediment cores? Oh, tree rings. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Frozen or Moana? <laughs> That's a tough one. Uh -oh. Yeah, no, I, I think it's Moana. I definitely got to go with Moana. 30 Rock or The Office? Office? Yeah, yeah. The Day After Tomorrow or An Inconvenient Truth? Oh, wow. That's a tough one too. I, we'll go with, uh, we'll go with truth and the inconvenient truth on that one. Jay-Z or Beyonce? Oh, uh, <laughs> that assumes some familiarity. Uh, yeah. Can I, what do I, can I say no to either? Abstain? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll this abstain. last one, last one. It's a, it's a highly charged question. Electron, proton, or neutron? Electron. Electron? Yeah. You said that you're, like, you're what, what's your preference? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just asking you. Electron, the negative charged one that's, uh, that, that circles around everyone else. Yeah, yeah. They're the most useful. Right, well, I'm, I'm sorry, Jason. I think uh, I'm afraid you didn't pass. Oh, no. All right. Well, I tried. Welcome to Pod of the Planet, a podcast about our changing planet and what we're doing to manage that change. I'm your co-host, Q Lee, and I'm an Associate Director of Communications here at the Earth Institute. And I'm Jason Smerton. I'm a climate scientist and Earth Institute faculty member. Yeah, I was just wondering, when, at what point, at what episode can I just start calling you professor? <laughs> Never. <laughs> <laughs> professor? Jason's fine, thanks. Jason, okay. Uh, so this episode of Pod of the Planet, we're going to be talking about transportation. Uh, we speak with a professor of sustainable development, one of your colleagues here at Columbia University. Sure. Her name is uh, Jacqueline Klopp. And I thought we had a really great conversation, um, not only about transportation and travel on an individual level and how it affected her, but also, you know, her work on urban planning and how her background in, in physics and political science all influenced uh, how she looked at the needs of, of urban planning in Nairobi, Kenya and, and beyond. Um, I don't know, Jason, do you, how do you feel about travel in general? What was the last place <laughs> oh, you've been to? <laughs> last place I've been to? Well, uh, I don't travel nearly as much as I uh, used to now that I have two young kids, but Jackie's uh, interview really resonated with me on, on multiple levels. First of all, we share this background in physics and, and then, you know, a, a complicated path from our early physics training to much more interdisciplinary work. So I enjoyed listening to that part of uh, her interview. The formative impact of travel uh, is something I can also relate to. My um, father's actually a professor. And so we uh, spent a couple years on sabbatical with mm. him um, in Switzerland, actually. Okay. And as a, you know. I'm surprised small, you didn't pick Neutron. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> We're going to really hammer that one up. Anyway, the, I, as somebody who uh, grew up in a small town in, uh, in Eastern Washington, um, you know, it was really formative for me in terms of my worldview, uh, having the chance to live abroad um, in a much bigger city. We were in Zurich um, and just sort of had my eyes opened at an early stage. And so I, I can really relate to 
the impact of travel is the way, the way that Jackie describes it. And it's certainly something we see with the students in our undergraduate program in sustainable development. We do everything that we can to encourage uh, their international travel experiences because we really feel like that's an important part of understanding our place in the world and many of the issues associated with sustainable development. Right. And it seems like that transportation at least itself is a bit under, uh, under fire these days, right? Uh, when we, we're, we're right now in the middle of um, a pandemic, coronavirus is spreading. I don't, is it officially a pandemic? Have you, I, I don't, I, I think people have called it a pandemic, but in I my head, it's a pandemic. I don't know. How do you, I think it's been called a pandemic in different places. I'm okay. not sure that it's uh, global, globally considered called a pandemic or if everybody recognizes it as such. Well, have you seen contagion? <laughs> I have not, but I, I kind of get the idea. Clearly you should watch that before you. <laughs> Uh, I I think we're going to have to return to our disaster preparedness plans that we discussed uh, in the last pod. Q, I've been, I've been checking on my uh, whiskey supplies (laughs) for my eventual quarantine. Yeah. I I haven't learned anything from our last podcast. (laughs) Uh, I haven't done any sort of preparation for this, but I will come over (laughs) once uh, New York city shuts down. We've been, we've been, you know, stockpiling a little bit, thinking about the, the implications of uh, supply side shortages. Uh, So we've been trying to at least think about, you know, getting, Lots of canned and dry foods uh, stocked up in the apartment as much as we can. And so, I mean, your your partner is a doctor, uh, mm-hmm. and you're kind of close to the front lines. Uh, what have you heard from that front? Um, you know, it's it. So, uh, my wife is a general practitioner uh, at one of the hospitals in New York, and uh, they are definitely developing their protocols for how to address this. Um, you know, I, I think in so many ways it's here. They're going to start seeing uh, many more p- patients with the virus and um, they like it. As far as I understand, everyone else uh, in the country, every other healthcare provider is, is really scrambling. There's, uh, you know, supply shortages in terms of masks and other things that are needed to address uh, the outbreak. Um, but much like many other places, they're also actively working to develop their plans for how to address this. Yeah, no, I think we're really fortunate here at Columbia University. We have uh, amazing public health officials who are not only out there and, and expressing the messages, but do this type of work uh, for a living, especially, you know, we, we talked about last episode, um, we have the National Center of Disaster Preparedness and the director of that place, uh, Dr. Erwin Redliner, um, has been really vocal about on every step, every day, it seems like uh, as new developments happen. And so, yeah, I, I feel like I've just been listening to him a lot and and, and, and getting my direction from whatever he says. I'll In do. fact, on another Columbia podcast, you can hear him interviewed by uh, Jason Bordoff uh, on the on the Columbia Energy Exchange yeah. uh, podcast exactly about this topic. He was interviewed just last week about the coronavirus. I think my overarching observation is just how things like this, these crises affect um society as a whole. And I'm always interested about how people treat each other, you know, I guess when, when these things happen and how hopefully people rise to certain challenges or, or don't rise. I was talking with my, my neighbor, um, who came back from Hong Kong on February 6th. And he had told me that how he had self had to self quarantine himself essentially. And I, I mean, in, in its way, I thought it was a very heroic sort of deed that, that he took that upon himself. I couldn't imagine how bored he must've felt uh, <laughs> during those two weeks inside of his apartment. And, but, but the fact that he did that, um, I thought was very cool. Yeah. There's, there's really interesting, I think, uh, considerations about the individual responsibilities that we all, uh, need to face and take on. And there's lots of heroic stories like that. Uh, and others that are not so heroic as, um, you may have heard the, 
case in Dartmouth, uh, New Hampshire, um, over the last couple of days, it's a story of someone who was told to self quarantine because they had flu like symptoms and uh, failed to do so and interacted with large groups of people and potentially spreading the virus more broadly. Um, so those are interesting things to consider. Um, but of course this all intersects with how we move around, how viruses are transmitted. Um, and there's lots of global development issues that uh, tie into this in the way that we deal with these threats. And what you do, uh, you know, what it means for the economy, for instance, if all of a sudden many, many people are being uh, quarantined or self-quarantined, not able to work and what that means for our economy as well. Have you looked at all at the emissions and the reports of uh, travel and how it's affected just emission levels in general? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, China in particular is the... um, area that I think has been studied the most. And of course it's had the largest impact on its travel and economy and, Mm. uh, things like, um, air pollution has significantly been reduced. And I think the last numbers that I saw in terms of the emissions reduction associated with the downturn in China has been equivalent to all of the emissions in New York state in one year. So it's a significant amount. Do you think it's, there's something where people can realize, um, that if you lived in sort of, maybe not in this current state, but in a state of less travel, less flying on airplanes, that it's not as, you know, bad as, uh, as you might think. <laughs> I can think of examples, specific examples where it might be relevant, you know, um, it's motivation for instances for businesses to think about doing things differently. Maybe there's uh, more telecommuting that they can do. Maybe, uh, there's more work that can be done. Um, by their employees at home instead of coming into the office. And right. so the, these kinds of crises do reveal um, other ways of doing things that might be better than the way that they were done before. And uh, they're more efficient. The employees might appreciate them more. They're more resilient to pandemics. Right. So it is possible that those kinds of things come out of these kinds of crises. I wouldn't mind working from home for a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an academic too. I do that a lot. I spend far too much time in my pajamas. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope to see you some point <laughs> if everything isn't shut down yeah, after your quarantine, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing <laughs> right. self-imposed quarantine. Um, <laughs> and, uh, thanks for joining us. Travel safe. You too, Q. Be we'll well. see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm joined by Jacqueline Klopp, research scholar, professor of sustainable development, and also co-director for the center for sustainable urban development. Just want to make sure I got all that right. Um, that's a lot of hats that you wear. Uh, how do you how do you juggle all those, or do they all make an appearance uh, in every day of your life? Well, they're all really connected, and also connected to the mission of the Earth Institute, which is really about research, education, and action. So all of those hats fit into those categories. Right. No, and I'm really um, excited that you're here because. I love talking about projects that have uh, real world sort of real time impacts. And and I've been following your work for, for many years now and uh, specifically the, the the work you do in Nairobi and Kenya and the Matatus, but I know there's a lot of other things that we can cover. Um, But before we get into the actual work itself, I want to talk a little bit about your background and and sort of where you started. I Mm -hmm. I know you have a background in, in physics, um, and then you studied uh, political science, and now you're a professor in sustainable development. I mean, where, where, how, do, how do these transitions happen? Uh, let's start with physics. I 
was very enamored by science when I was in college okay. and I loved physics. It was uh, a really great training for, I think, many fields. It got you to think really rigorously and logically and think about evidence and data. And it was very beautiful. Mm. <laughs> um, but I was also really fascinated by politics. Okay. At the same time, especially I'm old enough that I remember the Cold War. Right. And I also remember that many physicists were involved in the Manhattan Project. Sure. And developing very destructive right. <laughs> capabilities. Mm -hmm. In that context that they were in, it was something they felt was a moral thing to do, but they also unleashed right. something very devastating on the world. And mm. so I was always very conscious of physics as being powerful, mm. science as being powerful, but also political and having big implications. Did you study a lot of the political physicists at the time? I mean, I, I just coming to my head right now, I'm thinking of people like Sakharov, right? And and, uh, you know, it's kind of funny um, when I was in high school and my my physics uh, teacher was actually uh, he was Russian and he was quite political. He talked about, you know, Russian sort of dissidents and 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 obviously people like Sakharov and, and stuff like that. Was that a, a influence on you at all? Uh, thinking about those those uh, those people? Absolutely. And also people like Oppenheimer, sure. who had some crisis of of his conscience mm. after producing, um, the atomic bomb. And yeah, it just seemed like really important moral and political questions could not be avoided in any <laughs> arena. Right. And that science had a special responsibility because it was creating such incredibly powerful tools for good, but also clearly for evil. And mm. that's been something that I've been acutely aware of in my own work mm. also that involves technology. And we have a lot of these kinds of questions right now that we're grappling with, mm -hmm. you know, around um, artificial intelligence and big data, mm -hmm. privacy destruction and how it's being, you know, these technologies can be misused in politics. Right. So I think that early interest in the intersection of science, technology, and politics has stayed with me from my early times. And then that explains how I transitioned from science into political science to some extent. The other thing that happened is after I finished my degree, I went to Kenya for two years mm -hmm. to teach in a rural school. Was this your undergrad degree? And then- Yes. Went, okay. okay. Yes. And- there I saw very clearly lots of wonderful, bright young people who were, you know, struggling because they didn't have school fees. High school was not free. And often the brightest kids who were supposed to get bursaries didn't get those bursaries. Kenya was a dictatorship at the time and people were afraid to speak. Around what year was this? 1988 to okay. 90. Okay. And you could see all of these factors playing themselves out at the school. So mm -hmm. for example, the students wanted to have a school newspaper and that created a lot of suspicion and turmoil when they wanted to talk about some of the issues that actually touched on corruption at the school. Okay. And that experience 
really shaped me profoundly because I realized some of the most compelling problems like children not being able to access education were not linked to technological problems, but more problems of power and politics. Okay. And that's why when I returned, I studied political science. I see. So where did you, where did you grow up? Where, what part of the, part of the States? I actually grew up in Calgary in okay. Canada. Okay. Oh, immigrant yes. parents. You're Canadian. Okay. <laughs> I'm Canadian and American. So okay. I'm an immigrant here as well. Did you, did you know the, the kind of impact travel would have on, on your sort of your direction or, or what it might do to you or, did, or it was just an opportunity that sort of just came up and how, how did you make that decision to go to Kenya? Well, like many things, it was a bit of a, uh, it was a bit of ser serendipity. Okay. <laughs> when I was in college, I had a friend who was actually studying Sanskrit, but he had spent a year okay. in Kenya. Uh -huh. And he had a lovely friend from the region, Uganda, who was this tall, um, magnificent dancer okay. who had a tiny little white rabbit and was super gentle and very interesting. <laughs> okay. And I think they really provoked an interest in East Africa. And then also I, I studied at a place that had a program uh, and was encouraging young college graduates to go and teach in Kenya. Uh, the program was called World Teach. What were you teaching? I was teaching math and physics. Oh, okay. So you were teaching yeah. stuff within your And they had a shortage at that time in rural high schools. So okay. that was actually really great to be useful. <laughs> and so I think it was for an impressionable young mind, a really critical moment where you know, these abstract notions of injustice and deprivation and power hoarding became real because you could see the real consequences on people. Sure. I don't want to fast forward too far ahead, but I know you're, you're a professor now of the undergraduate, uh, part of the undergraduate program at sustainable development. How do you talk about travel to students uh, now or, or the importance of it? Yeah, it's complicated now it, for many reasons, including our carbon footprint. <laughs> yeah. But I think that Travel continues to be really important, but it has to be done well. Mm. I was actually asked by a young student journalist about this and especially around Habitat for Humanity and Engineers Without Borders and discussing the power dynamics around this. And what I, what I said to that young woman was that it is true that if you go and you travel and you're assuming superiority and you're assuming that power relations don't matter and you're not actually trained properly mm -hmm. to have the kind of humility and awareness of that mm -hmm. often that power differential, then you can do harm. Right. But if you recognize, for example, the post-colonial history of many of these places, histories of racism, for example, discrimination, and that, that legacy still exists. And so let's say you go as a person of privilege um, and you don't recognize that and you can reinforce those kinds of uh, inequalities and legacies by your actions. That's, that's very detrimental. 
So I think it's, it's on us as educators to really prepare young people for travel uh, and travel in a way that they recognize these histories and they recognize the context and they recognize how important it is to realize that learning is multidirectional and that you can't make assumptions that because you come from an elite university somewhere in a wealthy country that you actually understand more than many people who may not have had that opportunity (laughs) Mm -hmm. to have access to perhaps the journals and the people and so forth, but have incredible intimate knowledge about their own lives and contexts and that there's so much for you to learn. I don't discourage students from traveling. I think it's critically important. It was for me in shaping my life and my vocation and my actions and my thinking, but it has to be done in the right way. And Mm. we have that strong responsibility as educators to really have these kinds of discussions about the ethics and the histories and legacies and, and what development means. Right. And do those discussions also happen with your partners on the ground as well? Um, how, how much of, how much do you include them in these, in these sort of ethical? Oh, discussions? absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, I make a point if my students go to a particular country to say, you really must talk to professors at the local university and the local experts and Mm. understand their work. And, and in fact, they will be the most important mentors for you. So it's important that when students travel, they travel into a network of local actors Mm. who will also hopefully send their students to us. So I've been very privileged also that I'm part of a network of centers some in many in Africa and China and India and Latin America, and we have been able to circulate students. So I've had many students from Kenya and South Africa yep. come in here yep. so that it's more multidirectional. Uh, so that I think is really important for our teaching. Right. I had an amazing opportunity to travel a bunch in my younger life as a, as a journalist and most of that travel was about, you know, it's not simply just going to these places, but you know, you had to interact with, with people there and, and, and work with them and ask them questions and, and talk through things. And I've always found that that individual level of interaction was, um, was magical. Just these instances of, of communication, of interaction that just, uh, left, um, an indelible sort of experience within me that, uh, that I have, you know, they've taken for, for the, you know, my entire life. So one example I was, I, I talked about in a previous episode, how I had the opportunity to travel to Rio for the earth summit. And at one point I was with uh, one of our professional photographers and his name was um, Steve Berman. And part of one of his assignments was to go uh, and travel through Rio, the streets and, and get some, you know, color shots of, of what was happening in Rio, just so people could uh, get a sense of, you know, the city itself. And he wanted to travel through a favela, you know, one of the slums and, and what the city was going through to try to, um, I guess, prepare for this giant conference. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, the favelas are favelas and they're not wide open places for people who are not from them to, to be traveling through. And, and, and so when we were going through one, uh, we were with a taxi driver and he introduced us to a relative of his in the favela itself. And 
she she didn't want anything to do with us. But my my uh, my colleague Steve uh, noticed that she was wearing this belt and it said Steve on it, and it was <laughs> it was like one of the, uh, on her buckle. It had the word Steve, and it was just one of these things she had picked up from you know some donation probably or something or, or another. And he had his shirt on which had Steve on it too. <laughs> And it was just this weird connection that they made. And she had, I don't know, this, I don't, it might've been a bit of an epiphany or something or another, but she just sort of took us in and, and welcomed us like one of her family members. And we went inside and, and spent an entire you know day with them, practically just talking about her life and her family. And uh, it was just like uh, one of those you know, magical again moments. And, and all right, I, I've always um, thought that travel kind of does that and, or it puts you in, in these places or what forces you to, to immerse yourself in a place and, and learn, I guess. Right. Yeah. And I think as we face these really planetary crises, it's really important for us to see how connected we are across the space of our blue spaceship right? and find the things that are common, especially now as there's a lot of xenophobia and populist politics and anti-immigration feeling that's being stoked by politicians right at a moment where we really need to come together as a planetary society and confront our ecological and climate crisis. And so having those connections, those aha moments of, we have all these things in common and we can share each other's lives and challenges and hopes and aspirations is really, like you say, magical, but also a kind of glue that creates the cooperation that we're going to need. And we're going to need a lot more of that. Right. Absolutely. And, and so being in Kenya at that time, late eighties, I, obviously that was a big influence on your work with digital tattoos. Mm Mm-hmm. When, when did that project start? The project started in 2011, 2012. Okay. We really got on the ground okay. and started our work. Can you explain a little bit about what it is? Sure. The project started as a collaboration between a, num- a number of actors. It, MIT Civic Data Design Lab, the C4D Lab at the University of Nairobi, and a very small quirky design firm that focuses on informality and then the center for sustainable urban development. I helped bring the people together because it was clear to me that there are these new technologies, cell phones and abilities to track things. And they weren't really being used for transportation planning Mm. And there was this funny thing that was happening in Nairobi that there was all this large investment in highways and infrastructure for mostly cars. (laughs) While the majority of people are using little minibuses, they're using transit, they were using bicycles, they're walking. So somehow the transportation planning was basically ignoring the existing transit system. Mm. And also there were deep inequalities. How do, I mean, how do you even know about what was happening at the time and, and where did you have that, like that connective aha sort of moment? So ever since I taught in Kenya so many years ago, 
I've kept a very strong connection to the country. Okay. And it's a funny thing that happens as you build friendships and partnerships that every time you go back, they keep expanding mm. until the country is a little bit part of you. Mm. And I did my PhD research on Kenya okay. as well. And so, and that was very focused on the emergence of multi-party politics. Oh my gosh, that must have been. <laughs> which started right after I was started when I was there. So I started to watch people gathering and resisting the dictatorship and pushing for change. And it really started to accelerate. And so given what I saw in the schools mm -hmm. and the need for reform at many different levels, it was exciting to see that political movement. But at the same time, as it became official that there could be opposition parties, we saw a lot of very negative things. And I wanted to understand the connection between why, when there was these multi-party politics, okay. did we see an acceleration of corruption around land, which is very visible. So toilets, public toilets, schoolyards, mm. Uh, water reserves, forests, high court grounds were being irregularly privatized. And also the most disturbing was to see a rise of violence around the elections, which okay. was called ethnic clashes and had a lot strong element of focus on territory and land. So my thesis was all about that. So I have been studying Kenyan politics for a very long time. Okay. Yeah. It seems like a lifetime worth of work. <laughs> yes, it is really a lifetime and, and you still brush the surface of things. But so I got drawn into studying cities in part through my colleagues, including Elliot Sklar, mm. who is an urban economist who co-directs the center for sustainable urban development. And he really founded it. Um, so I'm grateful to him because he really brought me in saying, I'm doing this work on urban planning okay. and transport. I could really use somebody who's been in Kenya for a long time or has worked there and right. to help understand what to do. So I started learning more about urban planning about a decade ago. Mm. And it really helped to be outside of the discipline and learning from scratch. Right urban planning and transport, which is seen as a very economics kind of technical sure. engineering field. Yep. So my physics background was great <laughs> because it meant that I was not afraid of the fact that there was a lot of technical elements, mm. but my political science training <laughs> told me that the problems were probably not just technical. Right. So with that combination of background that we talked about, I was able to see something that was really obvious, but was missing from the transportation planning. And that was the transit system that existed, the minibuses, the modes that the majority of people use. Okay. And I also saw there was a politics to it, which is the political class mostly drives. They have a high, it drives cars. They have a, they're wealthy. And they have an idea of modernity that's pretty much like 1950s, 1960s LA, big mm. highways, freeways. So the, the planners, quote unquote, had this interest in car-oriented development. That was their lens. 
So it wasn't like there was a lot of critical thinking about what kinds of roads do people need. So bring it back to the, the, the matatus. I don't even, did we even explain what a matatu is? <laughs> no, I mentioned minibuses, but okay. I haven't defined the matatu. Yes. Let's mm-hmm. come back to the digital matatus. So matatus are these little buses and they're mostly privately owned. They are privately owned. Um, and they have been there since the 1950s when the colonial system didn't really cater for the majority of people in places like Nairobi. In fact, Africans were considered to be temporary in cities as laborers. And it was an, it was a convenient way not to really provide proper services. Mm -hmm. So then Kenyan entrepreneurs, started to buy these vehicles and provide service. So there was some bus service, but it was very limited. And so they've been around for a really long time. Matatu comes from the word three, which is tattoo, which is three cents pretty much to get on one of these vehicles and travel. In Swahili. In Swahili. That's right. And they're called different things in different places. Um, Trotros in Ghana, Danfos in Nigeria. And uh, yeah, so they have different names. And South Africa, they just call them minibus taxis. So different, different names across the continent, but pretty much in every city you go in Africa and also many places. Is that your your preferred mode of travel when you go to Kenya? (laughs) (laughs) Do you like riding the Matatus? (laughs) Yeah, I do. I, it's interesting for me because I also study them. Yeah. Uh, I also love to walk because I think you see a lot in the city. Mm. So, yeah. So these little minibuses are really the core of transportation systems in a lot of our cities. And the fact that we're not really, we hadn't really been mapping them out or understanding very well how they function was really a big lacuna, really big gap in our ability to think about improving these cities. Mm. So with digital matatus, with the partners, we got together and we brainstormed and we realized that with these cell phones, with GPS and also just GPS units, we could map, we could figure out where these little mini buses go and their stops and generate a map. Mm. And that map, which the civic data design lab created to look very much like a London tube map really drove home that this was the transit system for Nairobi, just Mm. like the tube and the buses are critical for London and, or New York. So I think it, it generated a lot of excitement because it also meant that, you know, you could start to provide information services for people. We got the data in a form, a standardized form that passed Google Maps validation. So it's on Google Maps, which was really important for us. So to show that this was possible and this was a new form of modernity to Mm. actually be able to access information about transit. When you say it's on on Google maps, does that mean you could map out your directions through the Matatus? Yes. Yes. Okay. Amazing. It's not perfect data, but it, 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 it's, it's good enough to uh, be able 
to help you plan. And in fact, I was at dinner with a dear friend of mine and his wife is Ecuadorian mm-hmm. who had moved to Kenya with, to be with him. And she said to me, oh, I'm so happy that I can see where the Matatu stops are in Google Maps. It really <laughs> helps me. And she had no idea I was part of that project. Right. And a lot of people are really using that data. We okay. didn't mean to favor Google Maps. We made the data open so lots of people can develop different tools and use it for research. Yep. And by creating this data, you also were able to show who had access to the different amenities, differential access. So we, I also did a project with colleagues to look at access to medical facilities in Nairobi. Mm. And you could compare access if you have a car to access, if you have a matatu to access, if you have, you know, just effective access, not, you know, whether you could actually afford the healthcare, but could you just get there, which right. is really important. Absolutely. So we compared with walking because the majority of the very poor still cannot even afford a matatu. Uh, And it's very, very clear then how unequal access is. So this data allows us to do a lot of things. And the Digital Matatus Project had an impact beyond what we imagined because other groups in different cities started to reach out to us. Can you help us? How did you do this? We wrote everything up into a open access article Mm. and really worked with a lot of other groups to encourage them to do this. Mm -hmm. And that formed the beginning of something that is called um, digital transport for Africa. And it's a network that is, that aims to really scale up this work and also share the data and have a repository for the data. So anyone goes into a city like Nairobi or Addis, they can be part of this network. They can get the data, they Mm. can improve it, they can use it. And it builds a kind of accountability also, because now if you build infrastructure and you pretend that there's no bus stops Mm -hmm. and you just build for cars, then it's very clear that you're ignoring the data. So it became a way to, uh, really uh, ambush in a way the economics, engineering, techno politics of saying, you know, we're just going to build whatever we build and we don't have to think about the rest of the people. We actually created a very technically sophisticated way to get data yeah. about the transit system that then makes it much harder for people to plan only for cars. So let me just list that out very yeah, for very clearly, I wanted to list out the sustainable development aspects yes. part of the, the project. Yeah. Fewer cars on the streets. Yes. Um, safety issues, right? Yes. Uh, reducing carbon footprints. Yes. What else? And I'm also really interested in public health problems related to car-oriented infrastructure. Right. So if we build the streets better... So for example, I mentioned that, you know, Matatus can stop more safely to pick up passengers. We reduce the number of crashes. Mm -hmm. Crashes are now the number one like killer of young people globally. Um, So it's a very serious public health problem. Mm. And also I'm very concerned about air pollution. 
as well. And I'm working with a wonderful set of colleagues here on the Clean Air Toolbox. Okay. And I'm hoping to bring these kinds of projects together uh, in the near future. And that's something that actually measures the pollution levels and, yes. and the potential impact that doing this might have in reducing them or... Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And being able to, again, use new technologies, so lower cost, smaller monitors mm -hmm. that are getting increasingly reliable to measure things like particulate matter. Yep. And to then really push for what we need to do globally, including here in New York, is that we need to reduce our carbon emissions and pollutants linked to transport. Right. And so, and then moving yeah. to the, the political side of, of this, do you, do you see the political will on the Kenyan government where they're, they're using a tool like this? Because in its essence, it's beautifully simple, right? Mm -hmm. um, what you're doing and the, the multiple effects are me, uh, sound amazing. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you need that, that political will to push it forward? Or do you think that a lot of these things will happen naturally because of the data that people are, are receiving and no, no. okay. Yeah. No, that's the thing I learned. Um, observing politics and technology is that technology never brings change. Mm. It's a tool and data never brings change on its own. Mm. It's always has to be connected to coalitions that are working really hard and mobilizing for change. Right. And I think it's helped us build a stronger coalition across cities based on data and people with a shared vision of improving public transport for all the reasons we discussed. So I think that's been really powerful and we've been able to use new tools and new language to be able to make our case for that. The other thing is uh, we have gotten support from the French Development Agency, which is really has been quite frustrated that many of the projects that they fund are not working so well. So, mm -hmm. for example, they funded a set of metros in India, small metros, but the ridership was very low. And part of the reason for that is that it didn't integrate with the minibuses. That's been a big experience. So there has been a positive shift, particularly in terms of funding from the EU and regions that are more concerned about climate change and air pollution and public well-being to be focusing more on funding public transit, but they typically fund big projects. And they're starting to realize that even if they fund these big projects, if they don't integrate into a multimodal system, yeah. because people move all over the city and need to make connections, then those investments are not going to pay back because people aren't using those systems. So they've now shifted to thinking about how do we upgrade these systems? How do we maybe electrify them? That's another project of mine, looking mm. into how we might electrify minibuses instead of waiting for big systems to be funded externally that, you know, will replace these minibuses, which is not going to happen. <laughs> so let's start figuring out how do we improve these services of these dominant systems? How do we electrify? How do we make them cleaner? How do we make them safer? Yep. How do we make them more attractive? So we keep people in these systems and not buying cars. And how do we link that to walking and cycling so people can do what we're trying to do here, which is if it's a nice day, you take a bike, right. you can bike to a bus stop. 
you can get off a bus stop and walk safely. We really want that beautiful, seamless, multimodal system right. that privileges the majority of people and privileges low carbon, healthy, safe forms of living around the city. So I, I know you have a, um, a special place in your heart for, for Kenya and, and, and Nairobi, um, but talking about things that we do here, do you see things that translate in your work in Nairobi, how they can, I don't know, work in, in, in New York, for example, I know we, for, we have, uh, our versions of dollar vans and, um, mm -hmm. tattoos here. I mean, I'm just curious, is there any kind of parallel or, or correlation you can, or maybe not a correlation, but, um, advantages to what you're doing there that could be used here? Yeah. So actually some colleagues mapped out the dollar vans in New York okay. <laughs> as well. They were inspired to do that and then actually see where these dollar vans are running. And one you know, observation clearly is that they're often run in places where bus service is very poor. So you see a direct parallel with Kenya where underinvestment in proper bus service meant that there's something had to fill the void. And so you get these creative people who, you know, build these alternative systems, which often have a lot of problems. I don't yep. want to glorify them, but they are also, we don't look at also how effective they are, which they often are getting people um, to where they need to go. Right. And they often provide other services too, more personalized. Once you get to know the driver, mm -hmm. they might actually drop you sometimes when it's raining at your doorstep or whatever. Um, at least in Africa. So there are these parallels for sure. And we also have a lot of environmental injustice in New York. I've been doing some work with colleagues in the South Bronx, thinking about how we can reduce air pollution there, yeah. which is heavily linked to all the freight trucks and expressways that that community is subjected to mm -hmm. because our food distribution point is in Hunts Point. I know it well. Um, my parents were uh, green grocers. Oh, and, really? Yeah. When they, when they first came here and, and, uh, I would spend many a mornings with my dad five in the morning or, or when, you know, whatever time it was, I was barely awake at the time going to pick up our fruit as many other green grocers did at the time at, at Hunts Point market. So. Absolutely. And that's still like really important, right. To feeding the city. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what the system is like now, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great time for me. I basically rode around on a, a bunch of carts <laughs> on <the> dollies uh, <laughs> up and yeah. down, the, up and down the way. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of memories of, of crates with lettuce uh, kind of ripping off and falling out of them and, and fruits here and there kind of, you know, bouncing around. So, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. People don't think about how many mouths there are to feed and, you know, we order our food and right. it shows up at our door, but there's so much that, and so much labor and so much that goes into that. And also some communities suffer more because the big freight trucks are going to their neighborhood like Hunts Point. Right. So you see a similar kind of spatial inequality around air pollution in Africa, but it's interesting. They don't usually talk about environmental injustice. So we're starting to have these discussions. Is that a really important concept also for African cities? So I really believe it's important to be engaged in your own city. And I'm trying to do more and more of that. And I think it actually makes the exchanges with my colleagues in other cities really more vibrant and exciting. And there's a lot that we can learn from each other. And I think that's, um, 
that's again, coming to your travel point, right. that travel plus engagement, including in your, no, your own city and this work is, is really valuable. I want to kind of wrap things up, but, but before I do, I, I'd like you to read your haiku. <laughs> uh, would you mind reading it? Not at all. Why bad decisions? Cars, carbon, pollution, death. Pathways must change now. Very nice. It's really getting my English major juices going actually <laughs> when, when, I, when I read your haiku. Uh, do you want to quickly tell me what inspired you to put that together? Well, I loved the haiku idea because it really is important to try to boil down some of the complex things we're trying to do into ideas that are simple and clear and make sense. So I hope actually after the conversation we've had that the haiku makes sense. Why bad decisions? I think that speaks to my interest in the politics and political economy of why we continue to build for example, transport infrastructure that has many bad consequences. So we're building this around cars and not people. It's producing a lot of carbon. It's very carbon intensive. About a third of our global carbon emissions are linked to transport. Um, in this country, a third for sure. And it produces a lot of pollution, which is very serious. And it produces a lot of death. And the death is linked to the pollution, it's linked to crashes, and increasingly linked to what's happening to cities in an age of climate crisis, people dying in flash floods of extreme heat. So I didn't want to end on a really negative note, but <laughs> on a more assertive note, which yeah. is that pathways must change now. And a lot of my work is about trying to understand the politics and process and creative tactics that can move us onto really positive people-centered, healthy pathways that yep. will also address our serious ecological and climate crisis. Thank you for joining Pot of the Planet. My pleasure. Now it's time for our last segment of the episode, You Asked. I'm joined by Phoebe, my colleague. How's everything going, Phoebe? Good, uh, good. How are you? Good. Great. Um, so I'm excited. I'm going to share a question that we get all the time. It's one of our most common questions, and I think it's an important one. This came in from one of our Instagram followers. Would you mind reading the question for us? Yeah, I got it right here. I've been told that my own efforts to reduce waste and carbon are too minor to matter, and that it's the responsibility of corporations to do more because that is where the bulk of it comes from. How accurate is it? I want to believe that my efforts matter no matter the scale individual versus big business. Thank you. Beautifully read. Um, so this is an important question because not only does it feed into people's daily lives and sort of the individual actions that they're planning to take, um, but I think it's ultimately about hope. Um, so when we originally reported this, our freelancer, um, one of our writers for our blog, State of the Planet, um, Anuradha Varanasi, she mm -hmm. spoke with Professor Steve Cohen, who directs the Earth Institute's research program on sustainability policy and management, um, which we partner with uh, with SIPA, the School of International and Public Affairs. Mm -hmm. um, so Steve's immediate response was, this is a false trade-off. Um, there's no single thing that matters more than everything else. 
And when it comes to reducing emissions, there are just so many factors. So it, it doesn't make sense to value one of these over the other. Um, another thing that Steve said, which I appreciated uh, personally, I hear this frequently on um, the zero emissions, zero waste community on social media, um, is that we don't need everyone to be perfect. We just need as many people as possible to be doing as much as they can. Um, and, you know, with enough people moving in the right directions and all taking individual actions, um, everything will make a difference. So I think, you know, whether it's through changing your personal habits or making sustainable consumer choices and voting, obviously, mm -hmm. the biggest individual action that adds up to a, a larger action mm -hmm. um, and remaining engaged in your community, all of these things add up really quickly. Um, and it's important to remember that, of course, we are individuals, but each of us is a part of many different communities, including you know, wherever you work, whatever hobbies you're a part of. Um, if you work at a corporation, you can make a difference from the inside. Steve signed off his piece really well, I think. Um, he said, you need to change on an individual level to bring about change on a community level. There's no doubt that corporations need to change the way they're functioning, but these things are not either or propositions. So that's it. That's have hope. Yeah. Individual actions matter. Don't stop bringing your reusable totes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know for you that individual actions uh, matter. You, you, you've been really instrumental in our own office and bringing things like composting to what we do here. And um, you come from a background where you worked uh, at, at, at Union Square Partnerships. What, what was it? With the so I worked at the Union Square Green Market. Green Market. Yeah. Right? And, and so, I mean, I, I'm curious, uh, do you make a distinction or how does it... Uh, how do, how do these uh, individual choices, uh, what do they mean to you? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, um, individual choices really did make a difference. Um, when I started working at Green Market, I was surrounded by other people making these individual choices who were, you know, bringing a metal fork and knife to work with them instead of taking a plastic one from the takeout place down the street or right. who were bringing their own bags to the market rather than using the clear plastic ones that are rolled up at the stands. Um, and I saw this happening every day and I was sort of like, Oh, this is just, this is common sense. This is, uh, you know, less waste is better. It wasn't even really like because of, uh, you know, political feeling, it was just sort of like an efficiency thing for me. So I guess sustainability at its most basic level, right. um, you know, reducing waste and just being efficient about your resources. Right. Um, but that sort of carried through into my home life as well. So I now try to purchase things that are all natural biodegradable stuff. Um, I use a really cool company called drops D R O P P S for my like laundry detergent and dishwasher detergent. And it comes in like a cardboard box. And then it's like, <laughs> there's no plastic at all. Like each little pod is individual and then like breaks down in the dishwasher. I don't know, stuff like that. I love because it's so smart, efficient. Um, and I just think that, um, that making those small choices in your daily life will sort of empower you to want to make bigger choices yeah. and you'll be able to see more inefficiencies all around you. And, um, 
that change in your own perspective is important. Yeah. And and the last thing I wanted to say about this argument is that it's unfortunately a an argument that's been weaponized, I feel, um, clearly for against climate activists and people being accused of traveling on planes and and doing inefficient things. And it's, mm. uh, and, and these are obviously all completely straw man arguments, um, unfortunately, but, but they do get attention and, uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, with better education on, on how, um, to approach these things and, and right. Just as you say, you, you emulate people who, who are making good choices and you understand how those choices are impacting their overall like approach to the problem. I think that's uh, a great place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Phoebe, for joining Pot of the Planet. Just want to remind our audience that you can always email us at podoftheplanet at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. You can uh, DM us whatever way you want to communicate with us. We're here to answer your questions. Thanks, everyone. I'll talk to you next time. Take care.